Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. We're super lucky to have uh, Pete Flint, a uh, general partner at NFX uh, and a former founder uh, and CEO of uh, Trulia. Uh, we have uh, our on-deck angels uh, here, Pete, uh, coming in. It's a group of uh, angel investors, some experienced, some emerging, all different types of uh, sectors and categories and from, from all, all over the world, except maybe some of our European ones might be asleep by now. Pete, it's great to, great to have you. Uh, maybe by way of introduction, maybe I, I can ask you to introduce yourself a little bit, and particularly how you uh, transition from a founder to a full-time investor, uh, because some people here are looking to make that, that that same switch or evaluating whether they should make that same switch. Uh, so maybe we could start there as a as a as entry point. First, thank you, Pete, for for joining us today, and uh, yeah, we'd love to. Why don't we start with your background there? Cool. Yeah. Well, good to be here. Good to see you, Eric and and the gang. So I guess my you know qu- quick background is that you know you might detect I was born in England, so lived in lived in the UK to my late twenties, and I previously worked as part of the founding team of a company called LastMinute.com, big online web 1.0 online travel company that was just super successful and interesting at the time, and uh, and I went to moved to the US ago to do an MBA at Stanford, and while I was there I I actually took a summer. I did the summer internship at Battery Ventures because I was always sort of in, you know, once you're in sort of entrepreneurship, like is either one side or the other side of the table, you have to figure out which side. I'm happy to talk about kind of internships of VC funds. And anyway, I actually didn't have a great time, not a terrible time, but just didn't feel like this is what I wanted to do. But I did, you know, during that time, come up with the idea for Trulia. So ran that for, so basically started that um, and ran that while I was at school for a decade. And then, you know, over, you know, after 10 years, the company merged with Zillow, an amazing journey and great experience. And at that point, I was like, okay, what next? And so, the, you know, that sort of thing that I was planning on, on and sort of the default option, I think, was to get into venture, but I wasn't sure. Um, I think, you know, you, you kind of come out of that, of a very successful entrepreneur, entrepreneurial experience and you know, it's it's actually a huge change while you're kind of hanging around with similar people. And um, I, I just wasn't sure it was the right thing. So I ended up taking a year off. I, I had young kids were just born. So unlike most people that have an exit, I was not in Bali kite surfing or, you know, you know, doing some exotic things. I was changing diapers and, you know, getting away from like uh, getting out of the house and meeting entrepreneurs and advising them in SF. And I think that was that point. It was more just a. Well, I guess what I was concerned about was this this kind of flip flip from managing a, you know over a thousand people to managing like literally no one, and I was very sort of like cognizant of this sort of of this flip, and so really I just spent a year just trying to like angel invest, speaking to different folks, seeing whether I actually wanted to do this because I I think you can overcorrect sometimes because at the end it was quite a tough experience you know having to combine two companies and. FTC reviews and all the rest of it. And so anyway, I, I, during that year, I kind of hung around a lot of venture firms and a lot of startups and just kind of realized that what was interesting to me was certainly investing, 
investing at the early stage where I had a unique, as a founder myself, had a unique kind of perspective. But I think most of all, really thinking about what am I optimizing for? I think for folks kind of figuring out, like, there's many different flavors of investing, whether that's angel investing, whether that's being an adventure partner, whether that's being a general partner, being a um, starting a firm, joining a firm. It's like, there's all different flavors. And I think it's, for me, it was really two things optimizing for the people that I work with and then recognizing that I'd had this fortune of being a builder and building something and wanting to build something again, not necessarily to be slotted into like, okay, you are the consumer marketplaces guy at series A. That's your thing. Um, I kind of wanted to get involved in all sorts of things, building the marketing, building the content, building the culture. So that, you know, then I teamed up with James and Gigi and, you know, helped to turn NFX at the time, which more of a sort of boutique, you know, two-person accelerator kind of into um, into NFX. So that, that was the that was the journey. Uh, that's awesome. And yeah, you guys have created a, a real a real platform with all the content and all the product stuff. It's it, 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 it's it's really impressive. How, how did you sort of think about developing your frameworks uh, as, as an investor? How, you know, you'd been on the operating side for, for so long. What have you sort of picked up in terms of frameworks, whether it's you're, you're evaluating founders or evaluating ideas that, that you think either, either are unique to you or just have been have served you very well that you advise yeah. other emerging investors? I guess one of the, I mean, as I think about, I mean, that that transition from operator to investor, I think one of the mistakes that I made early on was being overly focused on the idea and overly focused on the strategy. And, you know, an example is that I'd, I'd invest in a company which, you know, you, you'd go through the deck and like, wow, these guys are awesome. They've like, um, this is very clever and this is a huge market. This is spot on. And, you know, literally kind of investing off a deck as an angel investor. And then you sort of spend time with it. Like you realize that this team is just unable to execute, you know, perhaps, you know, generalizing, but perhaps they're just super smart ex McKinsey consultants that can like, know how to sort of strategize and present but just like you know when it comes to hiring when it comes to execution just like they've not done it and so i and and i think in a way i was like because i kind of knew how to execute i sort of felt the execution piece was easy um it's the sort of it's the kind of like strategy and idea and sort of the 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 clever hack that they would use to get scale so i i've i've kind of very much gone the other way which is like, you know, the team is everything and sort of almost downplay the kind of like strategy. Because, you know, the, uh, I mean, m- most folks have been around the sort of investment community for long, realizing that the first idea is really the kind of like the actual idea. And so things you necessarily need to change. But the right team that can, A, execute to get from kind of A to B, not necessarily A to Z, but A to B, figure out the right path uh, to get to the destination. So so that's one. So just a, a kind of focus on sort of team, team beat strategy, which I think is something that former operators need to be very, very aware of um, because they, they have that biases. The, the other piece from... I guess from my perspective, I, I spent my kind of career, the first half, first bit in, in Europe was very much, was essentially the kind of head of growth for lastminute.com. Although it wasn't called that, that was essentially my job was to get 
demand side growth. And then at Trulia, I was like, you know, I guess beyond being a CEO, I was sort of the chief product officer and chief growth officer. Those were kind of my, you know, my, my evenings and weekends. And so I'm, I'm very much distribution focused. Like, so how are you going to get, you know, the go to market distribution? That's really like, as I, and, and that's met a company day, great team, great idea, great market, but just like, just didn't have that go, the go to market, the growth mechanic and so much you know nfx does invest in a lot of marketplaces and you just need to have often this sort of clever uh supply or demand side ideally both to get you to get you that initial scale that initial traction um because things are so competitive if you don't have that insight or that novel go to market then it just becomes extremely hard yeah for companies that do have one but you don't agree with their where they go to market like what is the biggest mistake you think founders make when when making a Going market plan around whether it's around marketplaces or, or or something else, or is there a certain framework that you particularly like, you know, and advise your your companies? Well, I mean, I think the there's a lot written about it, but I think the the mistake that often early stage founders make is that they try to have a portfolio of growth channels, and this is sort of counterintuitive. Like the idea is like, okay, I, I can't be dependent on one thing; I have to have this range of different growth channels that to acquire consumers or to acquire uh, the supply side and realistically the world is so competitive and there is such a power law on these things like um and you have limited focus and what you can do often it's better to just do one thing extremely extremely well and you see founders like we're doing some seo here we're doing some email here we're doing some social here we're like no just like it's okay to experiment for a bit and then you just got to pick one and put 80 percent of your resources on that um that channel because then you can start to become, you know, not just good at that, literally world class at that and beat out the kind of the, the other folks that might be using, focusing on those channels. And you see, you know, the power law, whether it's in social, where kind of like the, you know, the, the top 1% in, um, in Instagram is just way beyond, um, the kind of like, uh, the, you know, the, the top 10%. Similarly, if you're trying to focus on SEO. Or you're trying to focus on focus on referral mechanics. Like this stuff has compounding returns. So that that's the you know sure when you raise your Series B and Series C, you start to kind of layer on these channels. Um, but you have to pick one, and you have to be like world class, literally world class at that channel. If you are there, then it will give you the opportunity to kind of go into other channels. The, the challenge, obviously, is just you don't necessarily know which channel, and so that's the insight. That's the genius. That's like. That's finding the person that's they hit it, you know, they figured out that this is the um, the growth channel for this product at this time. That that's the rare the rarity that we we're looking for. Totally, I want to be including some of the some of the questions that the, the audience is acting. We'll make we'll make this interactive. W- would you like to ask your question? Key, thanks for being with us. Pleasure to meet you. Super helpful. Wanted to wanted to ask a little bit. You mentioned earlier that you really enjoyed building, and you know you were optimizing originally for building, you know, working with the people around you, and that you really enjoyed getting into things like learning a little bit of the marketing, building a little bit of the culture. I find myself sort of like having very similar sentiments, and um, something I observe about myself, you know, is that I'm maybe like getting blocked because I want to learn the thing that I know I could be possibly like hired to do. Um, so I was just wondering if you could kind of talk through 
like how you went about filling in the gaps of your knowledge? Was it just because you really loved that thing and wanted to learn it um, versus like hired for? And then how you kind of thought about investing as like a piece of that puzzle? Well, I guess, I mean, on the building side of things, I think part of it is just, um, you know, my own, uh, I've been a CEO for a decade. And so, you know, and I, I often think that being a founder is just literally the most um, privileged position you can have. Uh, you know, it's a ton of hard work. It's, you know, sleepless nights, all the rest of it. But you end up getting to choose the people you work with and choose the environment you work in. And if you're successful, you get to choose the problems that you work on. And that, and that's just, you never get that. Like, I mean, it's, it's just think about kind of corporate America or the Uber drivers or like that. That's just like totally like incredible, incredible good fortune. You know, that was really a little bit of kind of what the calculus was going on in my head that I wanted to kind of build stuff and kind of, and be part of, part of that journey from really from the day one, not have to earn that so much. So that was, that was the thinking. I guess in terms of like learning different stuff and, you know, I, I think, you know, I've been obviously like a through my entrepreneurial experiences, I touch every piece of the organization. And so I guess I'd kind of, you know, I, I sort of had the background of kind of learning through, through time. And, you know, I think you learn, you know, and, and I would say I wouldn't have a single kind of methodology to learn, but I think you, I learn best by doing you know, learning from people, but actually just plunging in and doing it and not trying to make mistakes along the way. But, you know, my, I guess if I was to kind of think about the new skill that I've learned specifically in the last couple of years, which has been more, and, and investing, I think is sort of, is not easy, but it's like, I think there's a sort of, if you see enough companies and you speak to enough people, you kind of, you, you can get good of it. I think the big, the big sort of unwritten thing about kind of venture is the, transition from being an investor to being a fund manager which is totally different it's like a financial kind of kind of management and i think the process of learning and sort of the back end of venture capital has really been informed by just speaking to a lot of other vcs speaking to a lot of like limited partners and it's just like connecting with people and the same and that's just clearly one of the sort of magical things about our ecosystem they were able to connect with other people and they're able to share different perspectives and give, give advice. So I'm, I'm also kind of a, a big reader, probably more compared to some of the other folks on this, naming no names. I'm more of a kind of lurker than, um, uh, active tweeter, but like I'm more, I'm, uh, I, I'm voracious reader. So, you know, hundreds of newsletters, you know, can come into my inbox every week. And I'm I'm just consuming all that information the whole time, and and I've been doing that literally since I was twenty, like take, getting all this stuff um, coming in, and then and then maybe sort of skimming everything. That that's been my method of learning primarily. That's helpful, thanks, Pete. Pete, so you you spent a lot of time, uh, obviously as a builder in, in, in real estate, but also as an investor in, in real estate tech more broadly. I'm curious if you can give an overview a bit of how the how the space has evolved, maybe the different phases or, or waves as you see the space. And then what's, what's your broader thesis uh, right now in terms of uh, what the type of stuff that you're interested in and the type of stuff that you're, you're not interested in? Yeah. So I guess, so, so prop tech kind of specifically, I, you know, firstly, I think this is, you know, it's a, I, I've been sort of astounded at how big a category it's become, like since I was interested in it first 15 years ago. 
but you sort of the backdrop is it's probably not that surprising when you think about real estate as the largest asset class in the US. And you start to see, you know, while it was sort of mum and pop kind of back in the day, it's like you've seen just massive institutional demand for this asset class, particularly post 2008, where you've just seen a lot of a lot of institutional asset managers just making fortunes, not not overnight, literally, but kind of soon after in in going long real estate from that. And they built up this kind of massive exposure to real estate. And they the thing about these big asset managers, they want to continue that. So you've got very strong kind of um, equity returns as well as strong kind of more kind of fixed income and, and sort of more uh, lower risk returns from from Wall Street. So, you, so this is just this massive asset class. And then from a uh, how sort of prop tech and real estate as, a, as an online investment category has evolved, you know, I kind of think of it in three different buckets, <clears throat> all of which are interesting. One is residential, like changing the way that real estate is transacted. Second piece is the sort of leasing, whether that's residential or commercial. And the third piece is the spend around the home, whether that's construction and maintenance and smart homes and so forth. So maybe just take those those three pieces. So firstly, on the kind of transactional side of things, residential, or you could or you could say commercial as well. But you know, I'd say that there's really two phases, two primary phases we've been in. So the first phase, which I think of as sort of real estate 1.0, which was like 2005 to 2015, was really solving the information problem. So if you think of um, Trulia and Zillow and to some extent Redfin, which were really just pioneering, taking this information that was locked up behind agents and exposed that to consumers. And you know, a lot of war stories about showing kind of historical transaction data, all the listing data that, you know, we really, you know, Trulia and Zillow and others kind of just broke that database free and exposed that to consumers and monetized primarily through advertising. The next phase is uh, you know, real estate 2.0, which is post-2015, which is really solving the transaction problem. Um, and anyone that's kind of bought or sold real estate knows that it's just horrible, it's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's confusing, it's uncertain. Like, And now that's starting to be transformed. So probably the kind of, you know, the pioneering company there is Open Door, that the folks have heard of, which helping to solve the way that consumers sell their home primarily. And obviously, there are sort of other flavors of that, whether it's solving the mortgage problem or the title problem. But they're really trying to take this multi-month, highly uncertain, highly expensive, highly confusing process into a kind of, you know, as simple as booking a restaurant or booking a booking a hotel. So that, that and there's like, this is such a massive industry that real estate commissions are approaching on residential, approaching $100 billion. Like, I mean, and it's kind of lame, right? That anyone that's bought or sold knows knows it's knows it's big opportunity. So that's that's one clear piece, which I don't think there's going to be a uh, a winner take all. And, and it's very much you know people will look for different service providers with different product value propositions. That's one piece. So the other the other piece is on the leasing side of things. So you know commercial or residential. On the residential piece, for many people that are certainly non homeowners homeowners the rental check that you spend every single month is the single biggest expense item you have and it's still incredibly antiquated you know there, there are obviously there's folks like sonder and and zeus and kazakh kaza 
um, and others, which are kind of hoping to hoping to improve that. But it's still massive industry and very fragmented. So I see a bunch of opportunities there. And then on the commercial side as well, I, I kind of I look at uh, NFX's expenses and like, other than salaries, it's real estate. That's the single biggest, biggest expense. And that, you know, that's going to change as well. Where these companies are changing, and maybe this is the 2.0 there, is that they're kind of, you know, I think a lot of companies got really greedy. WeWork in particular, which were they're going to let, let's kind of buy buildings or or long-term leases or let's build build buildings. And like they're realizing that that could work, um, but you don't generate software type margins and you have incredible downside exposure to incredibly cyclical industry. And so those, you know, whether you're renting um, or you know, for uh, for residential purposes or your for commercial purposes, flexible leases, often low risk leases um, or lower risk leases, is probably where that's going. Master leasing stuff and then working with tenants is where that industry is evolving. And I think they're going to be, you know, particularly in what we're seeing in sort of real estate now. This uh, whether you're buying or renting, just this like widespread shift in demand. We're in very static supply. So there's a bunch of opportunities for companies to come out of that. Uh, and some will do extremely well. And then the third piece is just the expense spend around the home, where that's construction. You know, it's a trillion dollar construction industry. It, again, it's incredibly antiquated. And there's going to be a whole range of different companies that do very well there, whether that's, you know, from the workflow automation or VR to kind of manage the, the, the sites, whether it's labor improvements in the way the way that labor is done whether it's supply chain innovation that that improves the way that materials get there whether that's smart homes like figuring out how to optimize the spend all these things seem are seemingly incremental and seemingly niche but when you combine them in this massive massive market they can you can individually build extremely big industries so so that's that's a kind of like a short kind of update on kind of what's going on in prop tech what do you think about the uh, the companies that are trying to fractionalize real real estate in, in a bunch of different different ways? Is there anything that you've seen there that's particularly been interesting, or, or what about just that trend in general? I think it's directionally interesting. I think there's like from a consumer's perspective, there's definitely an appetite to, you know, just like in the same way Robinhood is just like lowers the lower the friction, increase the usability, and open up that market. I think there's probably similar opportunities in in real estate investing and that you know when you sort of look at the sort of long-term returns of of investing it can be extremely attractive there's a lot of regulation to overcome there's also a lot of psychology you know most consumers single biggest asset is the home and you know they should be more like they should be diversifying that but there's you know a bunch, bunch of anxiety about that uh you know people don't want to diversify because they they're worried about there's not enough trust in the system, and then also the uh, the U.S. mortgage industry is backed by the government and Freddie and Fannie, and and that's just like it's very hard for private companies to compete against that. So, you know, you've got you've got this very stable kind of capital source. You try to compete against this sort of you know the the U.S. mortgage business. You're competing with the government in some respects. So how can you? But there's something there. I, I don't know exactly what it is. There's a few companies that kind of we we speak to, but I think direction is interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, let, let's zoom out into broader broader investing questions. Juliana, would you like to to ask yours? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, my question was, how do you, how do you, um, you talked about strategy, um, people beating strategy kind of every single time and teams beating strategy and certainly been my experience um, having been in corporate. What qualities do you look for in a team? And how do you assure yourself that the team can execute and scale? You know, what comes to mind is just a, an idea, a sense of their ability to be exceptional in what they do. So, you know, whether that's academic uh, and, and the thing is, is really trying to find proxies for that whether they have been sort of exceptionally academically, whether they've been exceptional in athletics, whether they've been exceptional in kind of coming from one environment and, you know, when perhaps they didn't have the the kind of fortune of, um, uh, you know, like myself, of kind of a very stable mi- middle-class household of coming out and, and being extremely successful. So I think there's just this, like, are they kind of, you know, do they have, and that, and that, comes down to often sort of raw intelligence, but also drive and, and persistence. Two is the level of insight this person has on the market and that rare insight, which is, you know, partly skill and partly luck to figure out what it is. How, how do you tackle this market? The ability to sell and recruit people. You know, we've looked at many companies and, you know, sometimes particularly on the capital intensive companies, um, we pass because we just don't think the team can raise the necessary capital to achieve what they need to achieve. And it, it sounds kind of terrible, but I think they just don't have the, the ability to bring people onto the ride. But if, if they're not able to raise capital, they're probably not able to recruit people. It doesn't matter how good the product is, if they're not able to kind of bring people along for the ride and recruit people as well as bring capital, then that's that's going to be a challenge for them. You know, one off definition I've heard from some people is the entrepreneurship is really an exercise in bringing on resources that you don't owe, you don't you don't have access to yourself. And the terrific entrepreneurs are able to marshal these resources, whether that's convincing part, people to partner with them, whether that's convincing people to open their wallets, whether that's people to convincing them to work for you. You know, that's a kind of rare skill. The the other thing just on this sort of execution piece, one thing that, you know, there's a lot of people who've worked at many great companies. I think one of the skills that, that I've tried to learn is how do you figure out whether someone is, you know, and this is sort of crass language, but like, were they driving the train or were they the fly stuck on the windscreen? And, you know, and you meet, you know, early employees at kind of Google or Pinterest or others, like, you know, figuring that out is critical. And that's, you know, a lot of that's just frankly sort of back channel referencing on individuals figuring out whether they can, what what was their role in this this outcome that they're a part of. Have you ever have you ever been surprised at um, just you know you thought that you were making the right call with a team or with uh, with founders and it turned out to be not it turned not to work out. Oh, frequently. I think it's yeah frequently <laughs> that you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think I've got better at it over the years, but I think some of my best investments have been like I have really no idea about this idea but you are awesome and so i'll back you and go and figure it out and they 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 you know surprise and then on the sort of you know on the flip side there's people that are incredibly pedigreed in you know an incredibly sort of accomplished on the resume but don't have the kind of fortitude to figure things out so that's on the founder side how, how do you so we have a bunch of angels here who are investing in both seed and series a how do you sort of think about certain metrics or certain benchmarks that you're, you're looking for at each stage? Obviously, it's, it's company specific, but even just broad strokes, just in terms of frameworks for thinking about 
hey, this is a good Series A bet. This is the risk I'm okay taking. This is not the this is this is too much risk or not the kind of risk that I'm okay taking. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess sort of break it down at the seed stage. There are, and there are many seed funds that are or seed back companies that raise capital just after a business plan. You know, business plan not not in the traditional kind of twenty page uh, you know word doc, but just as sort of an idea. The basic sort of question on the team side is this. Is this team, does this team have a unique insight about how to solve this problem? And do they have the ability to scale this, this organization, this small idea into a huge company? And, you know, often that, you know, we do try and look for some elements of complete teams, not 100% complete teams, but relatively complete teams. So the team, the team is obviously the most important. And, you know, in talking to Juliana and the group, there's some sort of perspective there. Again, on the seed side, the market selection is critical. We've seen many, you know, many good founders fail in bad markets and, you know, market selection that is both penetrable, but also able to deliver venture scale returns being being critical. And then obviously figuring out the right timing. And then as we talked about, distribution is critical. So C stage, I wouldn't say there's really any metrics around that. Um, and sometimes no metrics is better than if you have, if you're ticking a lot of boxes, then like actually having no metrics is better. It's easier um, because there's no data to, to disappoint. At the Series A, the stuff that, you know, the number one thing is clearly uh, traction and combined with that product market fit. So I would say it's hard to kind of ascertain metrics. You know, I would say traditionally, you know, uh, like 100K MRR is sort of getting to the threshold of like, okay, this is Series A, Series A ready. Sometimes, you know, depends on the margin structure, but sometimes it's 200, um, sometimes more, sometimes, um, sometimes less. And then for many of the Series A investors, it's that it's the growth rate, which is going to be the, the primary consideration. And I think the, and the sustain and the related to that sustainability of the growth rate. So, you know, if you're doing 100K a month, 20% monthly revenue growth, it's like, that's, that's very good. There's a real opportunity, real opportunity there. You know, within within product market fit, it's you know, I would say this is part art, part science. You know, the science piece is mostly around retention, but you know, you you know, different cohort data depending on the the type of business you're in. Probably the more important thing is to really understand uh, the cohort data of your competitors, um, because I think you know, if you're a, and if you're able to kind of understand. They're not only because one of the things, particularly on the top Series A investor side, is they don't want to back the kind of third best team or the third best company in this category. And you have to demonstrate why you are the best company. And, you know, comparing a sort of food delivery company with a real estate company just doesn't work from a kind of metric perspective. But if you're able to kind of deeply understand the competitive step, understand why you have a unique uh, proposition on the product side, and how that translates to superior metrics. And you see while you might be smaller, you have this sort of upside potential, then there's a real opportunity. But I would really, you know, on a metric side, I think it's more about, it's less about what is the number, but why on the product, on this sort of engagement metrics and the retention metrics, why this is superior metric vis-a-vis the, com- the competitors. And, and I'm, uh, you know, where, where you have competitors, as a sort of as an investor, if you see a founder who is like 
detailing and, and dissecting why why this why this particular competitor failed or why this particular product is is insufficient and do it in a healthy way i find that extremely impressive you know they, they don't come from a sort of sense of arrogance where you know they're going to win no matter what but they've got a really sort of analytical view about what it takes to be successful and able to back that up with data and what are you looking for on the, you mentioned it depends on sort of the margin structure what, what are some some frameworks for thinking about uh think about margins i guess more is better so I, think, I guess i don't really have like a kind of like a very clear margin structure. Like through the evolution of the internet we've gone from kind of like pure software to more hybrid and so you've seen, you know, there's been a way more kind of like, and it's transitioned from kind of high margin kind of media to low margin kind of physical. People are opening stores for their kind of online product because it's clearly lower margin and it might make sense. Um, but you've seen this sort of like, as the category, as the industry has matured, people have gone to lower margins. And I feel there has been, there's been a sort of, you know, not, not a COVID thing, it's more of a WeWork thing. People have flipped back and just saying, ouch, you know, actually margin is really important and good margin affords a lot of errors uh, in in the business. And so I think there has been a reversion to this. The people I think were, you know, there was a there was a time a few years ago where people were, were more focused on revenue scale. And that and I think from an investor perspective, that shifted to like, OK, let's focus on margin. And if we have good margins, then that gives us, you know, we'll be able to navigate in a more um, volatile world. So I think that's been that's been a, a big change. Notwithstanding, there's like, you know, a, the open door offering and their kind of investor deck. They they talk about low single digit margins and multi billion dollar revenue numbers. And so that's you know that's an aberration. And I think ultimately that stuff will come down to like, okay, what's the What's the contribution margin for these businesses? And if there's a lesson on that, I think the, you know, the DoorDash IPO is, um, I mean, they they did an extremely good job and like in detailing kind of like cohorts and margin and contribution margin. And that's somewhat a reaction, I think, to the lackluster performance of Lyft and Uber in the public markets. You know, obviously the reasons for that, but I think they've, they, you know, that's a great lesson. How do you demonstrate like, what is seemingly low margin? How can you sort of justify high margins at yeah. scale? Yeah, I think blitz scaling was was the book was and the idea were most popular um, a couple years ago. Uh, you know, when you think about businesses like Airbnb, you know, you, you you can get away with it, but in sort of the WeWork era, or as these businesses become more hybrid, perhaps blitz scaling, as was outlined in the book, becomes a bit more uh, challenging. Yeah, I mean, blitz scaling works if you're in a highly network effect uh, company, strong network effect company. Uh, with software type margins, but you know, it's it's I mean, it's killed many companies as well. And the the flip side has been that I think COVID has been a blessing for many companies that they've actually realised that they they focus on growth at the expense of unit profitability, and then they've you know they've come out of that realising okay, we can afford to take a hit on growth. And Airbnb is sort of I've not read through their their S one today, but I think this is the classic where they've you know they're they focus on growth at the expense of profitability. And now they said, okay, we have a, we have a sort of a, a pass here. We can actually sort of right size our, our margins. Um, and now they're kind of, 
and I see this with with a number of companies in Applefolia that they've like okay they've focused on efficiency through necessity and they've managed, managed to get significant growth at much like lower cost yeah. by just by just building in product and and being more thoughtful about it. Totally, Ma- Max, could you uh, could you ask your question? Sure, thanks, Eric. Hey, Pete. Uh, hey, Max. Among other differentiators, NFX is a masterclass in the use of content to build reputation and deal flow. How should angel investors think about the use of content in terms of reputation or brand building? You know, is a is a blog post a month on a particular topic the right way to go for angel investors? You know, the way that we think about things in NFX is is both. You know, I think about it as partly as sort of like. Um, what is the sort of air game and what is the ground game? Meaning like, okay, we think about a lot of sort of content marketing to build awareness. And we thought about a lot about kind of one-to-one connectivity to sort of build relationships. And, and we think about that, both of those as, as, as sort of equally important. You know, I'd say on the sort of content piece, obviously, and, and this is general B2B marketing stuff, whether you're kind of selling a SaaS tool or whether you're kind of selling capital, I would, you know, the, the same sort of principles would apply. So. Clearly, sort of outcomes is a function of three ingredients. It's distribution, the content, and conversion. So, like, you've got to think about what is the, you know, and I break this down. So, on the distribution side of things, where can you get or, or where have you got a large audience? And so, what is it, you know, and figuring out how you can scale your audience and, you know, whether you have a pre existing audience or we have a sort of a database or whether you're need to leverage social platforms or something. And I think you're, you know, that that's the sort of starting point, focusing on the audience side. The second piece is, is content in terms of, you know, I think there are kind of many very successful thought leaders in venture that blog very infrequently, but it's incredibly high quality and incredibly long form. And that's, you know, and some of them do it on audio, some of them do it on newsletters, someone do it on blog posts. And like, I think you kind of have to, Pick a medium that's appropriate for what you want to focus on and what you what you feel comfortable focusing on. And then the third piece is is conversion. You know, if you're not doing those, but you're not getting outcomes out of it, like how can you think about sort of content that sort of is converting to the to the message that you want and driving engagement? So I guess I would think about it in those sort of three different buckets: distribution, content, and conversion. And really, you know, again, trying to get as deep as possible in, in, in each of them. Um, I, you know, I think for kind of us at NFX, we think, you know, we've experimented with videos and, and blog posts and Twitter and audio. And I think we're going to do all of them. And, uh, so we're, we're not sort of stuck on any single one. The one thing I would say, the frequency generally beats quality. Um, which is not to say that quality is not important, but at the margin, frequency, because so much of being as successful being a venture investor is being in front of mind. And so if you have someone who is interested in raising, are they going to reach out to, to Eric? They kind of, you need to be front of mind. So like, so at the, you know, high quality and high frequency, yes. But if you have to make a trade-off, I would go for frequency. Thanks, Pete. Um, th- thanks, Max. Uh, Zach, uh, could, you, uh, could you ask your question? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Erica. And thanks, Pete, for, for joining us this week. My, my question goes back to evaluating seed and Series A deals. Um, I know that you mentioned uh, a heavy focus on team and, and market. 
And a lot of uh, a lot of investors, when they look at markets, just kind of evaluate it on the on the pretenses of large and growing. So to double click on on market evaluation, how would you think about evaluating markets as a founder, and then also as as an angel or as a VC, such that we can kind of think of this uh, in a, in a better way than just large and growing? Yeah. Well, I guess I I'd sort of rephrase it. It's like let's talk about the size of the size of the market, which is it's really it's, what is the size of the problem. And so I think that's, you know, obviously, and that's the sort of classic, you go back into those kind of seed decks for Uber, like the size of the market's very small, but the size of the problem's enormous. And so that, you know, and I think as an investor, I'm always trying to think about the size of the problem, um, not the size of the pre-existing solution. And then part of that is the ability to kind of crack that market. And you may have a very large pre-existing market, but it's just incredibly difficult, difficult to crack. What's what's very interesting right now is that, you know, time and time again, as a student of kind of marketplaces and consumer businesses, you've seen market dislocations create imbalance. And where you see, and particularly if you have the sort of, sort of classic observation is that where you have pre-existing demand and a, and a sort of a market shock that could enable with technology more supply to be added into the market that creates a wealth of opportunity. And, and that's, you know, I, I was been speaking at an event last week around property and real estate, and you saw a bunch of companies do extremely well in 2008, where there was a bunch of investors wanting to invest in real estate, and they bought up a bunch of foreclosed houses and literally made billions out of that. Similarly today in kind of in real estate, where you've got this bunch of demand, can you use technology to kind of bring in a bunch of supply? And open up that supply and unlock that supply that perhaps wasn't there. You know, again, you know, whether does that mean converting offices into condos? Like possibly, you know, does that, you know, could it mean sort of turning strip walls into something else? Like, I don't know, but our real estate is, is changing dramatically. And so that, that creates a bunch of opportunity. So it's your, you know, not only the size of the market, but the sort of how easy it is to penetrate. And, and within that, it's often, you know, looking at the decision-making set within that. Are you selling to enterprises versus mid-market versus SMB? Like the, typically it's just much easier to sell to smaller customers because there's less decision-makers. So, you know, if you're able to just, you know, build up, you know, it's classic problems up SaaS, are you able to kind of focus in on smaller customers to be able to sort of demonstrate, who generally have kind of less requirements on the product? And then use that as a path to scale up, then that's, you know, that's clearly attractive as well. Thank you. That's helpful. Awesome. I'd like to take the opportunity. You know, we actually have uh, David Booth, uh, the CEO of OnDeck, who, 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 who's in the room as well, and as well as some other OnDeck team members. And I'd like to take the opportunity, Pete, to just get your your investor perspective on OnDeck, the business, in front of in front, in front of everybody, or even at the very least, you know, the questions that you'd be asking to see, hey, is this uh, you know a venture scale type opportunity at, at Series A? Maybe David can share maybe, you know, uh, one or two minutes as a as sort of a high level. Uh, you know, Pete, obviously you're familiar that we're, you know, in multiple categories, founder, angels, writers, podcasts, and we're, we're building a market network to use the, the NFX terminology. Um, David, do you want to have a, a bit of an introduction um, and then Pete can, can fire away some, some questions and, and this could be a, you know, fun interactive activity for the group? I think about Omdic in four eras, I suppose. We're in the second transition into the third. The, the second was establish a single flywheel. It was the founder fellowship and create a community that people initially 
you know, really want to be a part of because it's, it's, it's truly valuable, but also has status associated with, with being in there and referring others into there. Uh, the participation in that community continues to drive that flywheel, encourages people to refer more into it. As the alumni grows, it sort of has a, a linear growth. We then started to identify some areas where to really create the value for individuals in that community, we needed more than just what could be served by that small group, but the the, the, the liquidity that comes with it, the marketplace. And so we said, well, great, let's uh, build new programs that bootstrap the supply to the demand of the founder fellowship. ODA was the first. Um, ODW, OD50 is the one for, for joiners. And in each of these cases, they are themselves really valuable you know, communities to join and be a part of for that one purpose. But you think about you know, the input to each one ideally comes from another existing community. And, and OD50's case is a really good example what do job seekers want? They want jobs. What does ODF want? They want uh, talent. And so that's the third area is, is sort of the interlocking network of opportunities, each serving each other's interests. The fourth to me is to say, we'll actually take the on-deck directory as the backbone of all of these and to call that the, the identity layer that helps people transact through each other. If you want to you know, build your reputation within the Ondeck universe as a founder, a writer, an angel, you'll keep your profile up to date because that's the way that, you know, we can generate the most relevant introductions for you. You know, you, you have, you stand the best chance effectively of finding counterparties to your, to your transaction. And there is so much value bundled into that, that obviously people are paying up front to be a part of this community. And I think that's really important that we're aligning their interests with it. But over time, you know, th- there's the opportunity to, to to flip on sort of a, a premium layer of a, of a subscription that actually drives the engagement even further. Uh, so, you know, people are paying for ongoing access to the full suite of the content libraries to the, you know, premium search tools or, or something like that. And that's, that's the fourth phase. Um, and that if there was an, an opportunity to drive a wedge into into LinkedIn today, it would be starting out by by targeting the most valuable subset of the economy, which to me is the builders and the people who want to work with them and invest in them. And it would start out by creating a space for them to transition a lot of their identity into a digital form and to transact through that digital identity. Yeah. It, you also, guys are busy. Yeah. And the thing I just add really, really quick to that is we, um, I'm, a, I'm not a big believer in, in bank. Sh- like I always want the first idea you pursue to be, to be the big idea. And so we think we can get to uh, 100 million in revenue just based off the phase that we're in right now, which is the you know expanding fellowships. Uh, the founder fellowship itself is a five million dollar a- annual business, and we think we could get to you know somewhere between 30 to 50 fellowships, uh, and you know 100,000 uh, fellows paying uh, at least two thousand dollars a two thousand dollars a year. So so that that's how we think about it. Uh, I mean, look, I think it's um it's hard to kind of give you sort of feedback on the spot, but I mean, clearly as a sort of you know, as a student and practitioner of network effects, there's like clear kind of utility in here. The flip side is obviously this sort of element of kind of like anti-network effects. You know, we've all seen it where we're kind of in a dinner party of kind of seven people and it's been awesome. And then, you know, it becomes like 20 people and you're like, you know, it's not that much better. And arguably it's worse because there's, you know, seven conversations going on. And the food doesn't arrive at time and someone's finishing their appetizer when someone has finished the dessert. And so you've kind of, you know, I think that's, you know, that will be the kind of thing to kind of navigate that this stuff, you know, what's to stop uh, other people creating the on deck of X 
And so, you know, often the way that companies get over that is just creating a sort of a, a sort of technology platform that kind of creates a more efficient matching algorithm, and kind of so you can curate more effectively at scale, which I which I think is is interesting. I think the other question, which just goes more broadly to kind of venture businesses and venture capital investing, is like, should this be a venture capital in back company? Do you need rocket fuel? And, you know, I think there was some, I mean, like all of us, we speak to startups every day, like, you know, if it's, you know, do you need to spend like $10 million building out technology or sales or whatever? Like, maybe, maybe not. And I think there's a lot of, um, so I, I would ask that question first. And that's, and we've all, we've all met friends that want to raise venture capital because they kind of like think they should, but, you know, that, that's, that's a kind of like the fundamental question. Cause I think you, if you don't have to, then, um, you are serve less masters, and that means you can serve your primary audience more, more effectively. But if you need, you know, if you feel that there is a need to kind of build this out, then then um, you should absolutely do that. I think the other, you know, within this, the question that I would also ask is just around the sort of core product and technology that's there. I think that if you can build out an amazing technology platform, then I think that's, you know, that that's really interesting. Right. So like and I, I think there's there's a lot of legacy technology, particularly LinkedIn in this area. But I, I wouldn't I also wouldn't approach this as a LinkedIn, I think, is undisruptible. Uh, but I think li- LinkedIn is very augmentable in that you're able to kind of build value on top of it. Just like Google is undisruptible, Facebook's undisruptible, um, Twitter. But you're able to kind of like there are parallel experiences that you can build on top of it in the near term that might actually make it just frankly less relevant in the future. So I, I would think about it more. How do you make it augmentable? That, mm. Okay, this is an alternative way to use it as opposed to a substitute. I just ha- actually have in front of me I, a, a quote I actually wrote down off of an NFX podcast with Eugene Wee, which I think is, is perfect here and, I, and sort of framed as a question afterwards. But the, the quote was, in the long run, the ideal is to be able to offer utility to your user base it's the most stable long-term competitive advantage you can have in a network. However, it's also true that most network-based utilities only realize at a particular scale. And that's LinkedIn's you know, thing with 500 million users. That's a scale, which I think you're right, makes it hard to disrupt. So the question is, how do you get there? Because there's a million networks to die along the way. What's this, the status game? One thing that we, we think about is, is, so there is this idea of, of, of a trade-off somewhat of status and, and utility. Nobody looks at a LinkedIn profile and says, "Wow, you've got a LinkedIn profile. That's like a. It's not a credential. It's not a. It's not a. Everyone has a LinkedIn profile. Almost no. You know, only a, only thirteen hundred people in the world have an ODF profile, uh, and it's very hard to get into. You know, we accept less than ten percent of people who apply to ODF. And as you know, the community grows, we're still accepting a very small number of people. But there is an. I don't. Eric frames this sort of question better than I, I think, but. Yeah, there is an argument that if we just let 10,000 people into the cohort, so long as you kept the quality above a minimum bar and, and you set the expectations right, then you'd really only continue to incre- increase the, the, the utility through the, the network value. Um, but we're choosing not to. We're choosing to keep each cohort very small and to sort of to, to have the, the community size grow incrementally and then also sort of to grow in the different vectors. I wonder if you have any um, any feedback on that, Eric. Feel feel free to, to to reframe that question if you or that statement if you if you prefer. I mean, I would just. I mean, it's this classic problem of moving from a product to a platform, and I think this has been sort of you know whether you're 
there's you know many many companies have gone through this transition and some of and most of them will kind of go through it in an agonizing way because you'll end up having to turn specific features into generalized features because you kind of have to generalize what you do to kind of help to help to scale it out into di- different areas you know whether you're slack or whether you're facebook or whether you're twitter they've all gone through these growing pains of transitioning from a kind of single product to a, a multi-platform so i guess i would be you know w- within that transition you kind of have to have the you know the stomach to kind of go through it because you you are gonna you're gonna lose people to gain more people but that's going to be the transition you're going to make and 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 people are going to complain about it but i think it requires this level of long-term thinking and sort of product genius to make that transition i i did a podcast with april underwood you should perhaps listen to that as well where she kind of talked about the slack kind of evolution from product to platform and she was at twitter before that just these growing pains of and th- and this is one of the real challenges of community-based um, products where you try to be utilitarian in terms of kind of listening to the audience and building products that meet their needs but you also need to be pretty long-term thinking and sort of upset some people on the way to realize that okay this is actually better then the facebook newsfeed is sort of a classic example everyone hated it and then everyone loved it within about a week but people people will sort of complain about and, the, and yc is another one where there was like they were pretty good 50 people per cohort and then really bad 50 to 150 and i think now it's sort of well, who knows? Now it's different. But I think now they've kind of settled into a kind of a, a better place because they needed to re-architecture things along the way. But those those growing pains are going to be pretty painful. I just found the podcast. Thank you for the, the tip. I'll definitely listen to that. Um, I, I wonder if there's is there any parallel here you could draw to um, the way that some information networks have scaled. Uh, if I think of examples like Quora or Wikipedia or Reddit or Yelp, they all have a so like an, uh, uh, there's like an 80-20 rule where 20% of the people create 80% of the content. Uh, and, and in order to kickstart that flywheel of, of high-value contributors, they you know, create status games for them, like you know, the Yelp Insiders Club or the Wikipedia contributors. Um, or the, and in and, and, and this, I mean, if, if we take sort of our early uh, engaged you know, su- super community, I, I, I see Max Greenwald's name popping up in the chat. He's, he's one of them here on a second fellowship and say um have you have you seen examples of like early communities that can can really look after their early so communities that can really look after their early members um and sort of elevate them into super curators or, or other other resources to transition that gap or any any advice on that front well i think that's pandering i guess or, or sort of uh understanding what kind of super users is fundamental because there is, you know, there's very much this power law, whether it's the Twitter, Twitter tools for celebrities, or whether it's, um, you know, like the sort of LinkedIn influencers. So I think all those sort of techniques are kind of very interesting. How do you how do you continue to add more value to the people that are most valuable to you? And part of that is a status component, but I think a lot of it is also utility as well. So the question, you know perhaps figuring out what is your top 10% of your 1300 people and like what are the the needs of that community you can super serve and focusing in on in that and that may up may unlock some ideas 
because I think we've, we've talked we, I've heard you talk about it before how you and you talked about this sort of percolation often in, in sort of network business they percolate out as opposed to plant flags it's very hard to plant flags you know they need to percolate out so what are the sort of services that this top 130 people are interested that you could provide that's super helpful and in terms of yeah, whether to, to 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 raise or not, it's interesting. It's a heavy cash flow business, so we um we we don't need to 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 scale. I think the space is heating up a little bit, and 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 the combination of COVID also, we're wondering if there's a bit of a land grab um, opportunity, and and then also just a higher valuation allows you to acquire people or acquire people, and you know convince them their equity is worth is is worth more, <laughs> or tell them their equity is worth more. And we see a lot of people who are doing on deck for X. Who we want to do that in in our in our site? Yeah. So th- those are some reasons why why we're considering it. Yeah, I mean at the macro level, like education uh, is you know is ripe for disruption. Shahrose has a uh, has a question. I'd like to, to to call on her. As you think about how we're transitioning from like maybe the one dot or two version of marketplaces, where I think in many of them maybe one side is served better than the other, supply versus demand often. You know, you think of the Uber example, the supply side might not be as happy as the demand side or to your point on LinkedIn. I don't know. I don't know that as a consumer, I'm that happy with the product, but supply is there. All the jobs are there if I'm looking for one. But also the margins um, have been a challenge in this business. So as you move into the new world of marketplaces, like what do you imagine uh, will be different in the next wave? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the sort of fundamentals of how marketplaces evolved, they've, they've really evolved in two directions. And this is sort of kind of the sort of, it's the drumbeat of, of marketplaces. Now I would say it's like, and so the axis is like, on the one hand is improving the user experience. On the other hand is making or creating more value or extracting more value from the transaction. And that's just the drumbeat constant drumbeat and i think you've seen how different marketplaces have entered that you know that universe to take doordash example like there are a lot of companies that are doing restaurant delivery but uber was owning the experience and was able to provide literally a better consumer experience actually take less money but over time they clearly are able to take way more money so that i, I would say just the constant drumbeat of how do you have a better user experience or extract more money from that transaction, the the better user experience can obviously drive to kind of better supply side, so sorry, better demand side uh, acquisition. But if you have greater unique economics, you know, then you're often able to have more money to spend on acquisition, have more money to spend on product development. That's been, or even sort of get vertically integrate so-called managed marketplaces. Uh, if you're able to capture more of the transactions, so so those that's the sort of simple. Aaron, and, and then there's often whether that's consumer demand changes or whether that's technology changes that enable, which unlock kind of new, new sort of category shifts in these pre-existing marketplaces. So, you know, whether that is a, I don't know, I'll make it up, but like VR becomes a thing and you're able to, you know, transform the economics of a particular industry and as such create a new marketplace based off VR. Um, those technology shifts are often catalyzing events to create new experiences when you think about particularly the margin question though just to like dig in on that for just a second like yes so if you think about a constant 
drumbeater and better user experience? Are you implying then, you know, raising prices to then increase those margins to extract more money? Or is there another way to really think about the thin margins that we're working with? Or is it really just about getting to that scale? Well, I'm thinking more about better user experience broadly. You know, and I think this is sort of a mainstay of like, okay, let's take some examples, whether that is Airbnb. Like previous to Airbnb, Home Away just didn't give you kind of immediate booking, which was kind of lame. So that, you know, and that was a sort of simple innovation um, that Airbnb had that enabled them to kind of create a better user experience. In real estate, open door, I think if you can sort of get cash in 48 hours for a property, like that's a great user experience. But I think you kind of, I mean, I wouldn't think about sort of incremental user experiences for breakthrough marketplaces. It's like, okay, how do you have a like five to 10x better user experience that you are able to build that will kind of create a like, you know, give the ability to suck the kind of like the supply or the demand from a previous existing company marketplace over to this new marketplace. And, and it may be in this sort of tiny niche um, that you could use as a wedge to kind of open up into a into a much bigger market at a time, which is exactly the case with Airbnb back in the day. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Charles. I think that's a great place to to wrap. Pete, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us about uh, about angel investing and, and about your experience at, at NFX. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. We're really appreciate cool. it. Cool. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.